There is a wood at the top of a hill. If it's not shifted, it's standing there still. There is a farm a short distance away, but I'd not advise you to go there by day. For the snipers abound and the shells are not rare, and a man's only chance is to run like a hare. So take my advice if you're chancing your arm from high wood to waterlot farm. High wood to waterlot farm, all on a summer's day. Up you get to the top of the trench, though you're sniped at all the way. If you've got a smoke helmet there, you'd best put it on if you could, for the wood down by waterlot farm is a bloody high wood. Lieutenant Ewart Allen McIntosh, first of the fifth Seaforth Highlanders, High Wood, the Psalm, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 18, Psalm, A Bloody High Wood, part one. So the poem I just read in the intro, High Wood to Waterlot Farm, uh, was adapted from a 1915 music hit called Chalk Farm to Camberwell Green, which you just heard as this episode's intro music. Uh, a YouTube link will be provided on Twitter, the Facebook, uh, and firstworldwarpodcast.com so everyone out there can listen and then sing along to it. It's, it's actually a wicked catchy tune. All right, so the BFWWP got a couple of shout-outs. First shout-out came from Mr. Phil Manell at World War I Digger Stories. Uh, awesome guy. If... You haven't heard that podcast yet? Please give it a listen. Um, also, second shout out came from my stepson Lee, who does the Viking Age podcast. Uh, he gave us a shout out when he recently hit his one year anniversary for his labor of love. So, um, during his question and answer session, uh, he he mentioned us. Lee was my man who gave up a week last year to slog through muddy ravines and shell holes around Verdun with me. Uh, and that time just frankly stands as just one of the most enjoyable weeks of my life. So I'm going to give a shout out for Lee's work as well. It's a monumental work and it is vastly more uplifting than industrial warfare on the Western front of the Great War. So Lee's Viking Age podcast covers the who, the where, and the why of the whole Viking Age. And he brings the Viking R, those Norsemen who went a Viking, to stunning life. If you want the real story with deep, deep background on why the Danes and Swedes did what they did, head on over to Viking Age podcast and get your entire Norse life together. Also, want to send big shout-outs to listeners 
Shane, and Steve. Shane has been very kindly sending photos of the village of Gonshi and the memorials there. And Steve sent photos of a local North Carolina in the World War Museum exhibit. I love this exchange and sharing of photos. Um, hit me up on Twitter or the Facebook if you have any photos you'd like to share. They are always welcome. I mean, this is what this is like. The best part is hearing from listeners and and getting to to see their experiences and their connections to World War One. Shout outs to listeners William and others who have provided wonderful reviews on iTunes and many thanks to everyone who has donated to the BFWWP recently. Your donations go towards keeping the servers open and towards the purchase of new books and other research materials. Thanks again so very much. All right, so let's get our tin hats on. Make sure our rifles got one up the chimney and put down that last swig of soon run dry. Okay, because we are heading up the line, up Flatiron Valley and back to the area around Bazandon Ridge. If you are able, get yourself on Google Maps or something similar and put yourself in the village of Bazandon Les Petits, France. Once you're there, look to the northeast for a boxy, diamond-shaped patch of forest named Bois de Foreau. This is High Wood. Northeast of Bazantan les Petits and northwest of the village of Longuival, the Bois de Foreau was a wood prized for its chestnut trees by local farmers who used the wood to make Foreau pitchforks. But because the wood sat on a slight rise of ground that dominated all of the flat farm fields around it, members of the British Expeditionary Force, whose job it was to name these places on battle maps, thus named it High Wood. High Wood may have sat on an almost insignificant bump of earth, but in 1916, its 75 acres were a German fortress that provided commanding views of Bazantan les Petits and Bazantan les Grandes, as well as all of the ground in between. Looking northwards, Highwood also had good views of Les Sars, Ocourt La Baie, and on good days, even the Butte de Wallencourt and the village of Flair to the northeast. Highwood had the usual rides running through it, those being the horse and wagon tracks inside that locals used when logging or hunting. The Germans had the place wired tight, and it being high ground, they were not going to give it up lightly. Trenches and machine gun posts snaked their ways through the trees, all leading back to the switch line. The switch line was a real bastard of a trench line. It was dug deep and ran out from Martin Puich to the northwest through Highwood's northwest corner and it continued on through open fields to Longueval and north of Delville Wood. This trench system was also dug into the reverse slope of Highwood's height, which kept the ever-closing Tommies from getting a direct visual on it. As Lynn MacDonald noted in her excellent work, Psalm, quote, so long as they held the switch line, 
the Germans would hold High Wood, unquote. As the sun dawned on the dust, smoke, and flame-covered Bazenton Ridge on the 14th of July, 1916, the surviving Germans in the British Fourth Army's attack zone were reeling. The night attack had been devastatingly effective. From Bazentin-les-Petits and Bazentin-les-Grands villages, Tommies could see German troops hightailing it out of the area, moving north through High Wood to the switch line and beyond. High Wood was soon discovered to be empty and undefended. 15th Corps Commander General Horn received news of this but wanted to wait for the cavalry and until Longueval to the east was taken. Orders went out. This is a cavalry job. So wait for the cavalry. Highwood's unmanned status was confirmed when Brigadier General Potter, commanding officer of 9th Brigade, 3rd Division, literally walked up to the wood and into it late on the morning of the 14th. Potter later reported that, quote, So I wandered on until I found myself approaching a large wood which continued over the crest of the ridge. There was no sign whatever of the enemy, so I walked into the edge of the wood but saw no sign of a German, nor any defensive works. The wood reached by me I afterwards knew as High Wood, and it is a great regret to me that the advance was not pressed that day, and the hundreds of thousands of casualties afterwards expended in the capture of the position possibly avoided." Unquote. It should indeed have been a great regret to all, not just Brigadier General Potter. An 800-yard wide gap was open in the German lines, with Bois de Faroux sitting squarely in it. Waiting for Longueval to fall until moving on high wood was, to put it as nicely as possible, ass backwards. It was the other way around. With the capture of the high ground at high wood, German positions in an arc extending from Pozières to Martinpuich to Longueval would be in serious jeopardy if not made untenable. The British Fourth Army wanted high wood, that was for sure. So as we saw back in episode 13, the cavalry was called up and magnificent Indian horsemen of the 7th Dragoons and the 20th Deccan Horse made their way up the front slowly on account of the heavily shell-cratered ground. In mid-afternoon, News also came out of Longival that the Scots of the 9th Division had taken the whole of the village. This was seriously incorrect, as a German counterattack in the battered village squashed that idea. But acting on what he had, Horn decided the time to seize High Wood was now. The delay with the cavalry and several miscommunications resulted in available infantry units nearby not seizing the wood, and all during the window of a precious few hours while the wood was empty of German troops. Cavalry finally did make it and did its job to the east of Highwood, rushing a Bosch machine gun and outpost line and spearing a few poor Deutsch souls with lances in the process. With all of the aforementioned miscommunications and delays, it was fully 8 p.m. on the 14th of July 
before the men of the first South Staffordshire's and second Queens of the Royal West Surrey Regiment. Having assembled east of Bazantan le Petit, near the bullet-scarred figure of Christ at a crossroads called Crucifix Corner, advanced towards the darkening wood as the cavalry advanced on their right. British airplanes buzzed the sky with their lawnmower engines, giving support to the cavalry by shooting tracers at any Germans they could still see. And always in the background, the thunder of artillery hammering at the earth relentlessly. The Tommies were met with machine gun fire from the field before High Wood, and it took its toll. Yet Staffordshire and the Second Queen's men kept pushing, taking the field in ten minutes, and three disabled field guns as well. Reaching the tree line, with the Staffordshires on the left and the Second Queen's on the right facing the southern face of the wood, the sweating Tommies stepped into the darkness as evening mist began to descend on the battlefield. Inside the wood, they were met by sniper fire that started dropping men every few steps. The British men fired back at the muzzle flashes, and then German machine guns began to hammer the darkness. High wood was no longer empty. Within an hour, the roughly southern half of the wood was in British hands, but with 300 yards of the switch line running through the northwestern corner of the wood, they could come no closer. So in the dark of the sweet chestnut trees and foliage, the wood was as yet unaffected by artillery fire. The Tommies began digging in. To their right, in the fields between Highwood and Longival, the Indian cavalrymen did the same. British artillery now began raining down on the northern part of the wood and behind it, rocking the ground with the impacts. The Brits were in Highwood. Now began a scramble to get more men up to it to help secure it. On the German side, they began a scramble to get more men to help take it back. In the British frontline trace, there was confusion as to the whereabouts of a supporting 100th Brigade of the 33rd Division that was supposed to be on the left, supporting 7th Division's operations to take the wood. Acting on his own initiative, the 100th Brigade's commander, Brigadier General Baird, ordered two of his battalions not to support, but to join in the attack on High Wood by seizing ground to the west of it. The 1st Queens and the 9th Highland Light Infantry, also known as the Glasgow Highlanders, moved up to help assault at 9 a.m. the next morning. Both battalions were to take the road running between the western corner of High Wood back to the northeast corner of Bazantin Le Petit. Under the cover of darkness, German troops were running through the curtain of artillery to reinforce those men already inside. The switch line was still being dug, and the digging went on feverishly because there was no other trench line behind it. Nevertheless, a Major Witte, the highest commanding officer among the sweat-soaked and shivering Germans in High Wood, decided to counterattack as soon as he had enough men to do so. The German counterattack came forward like a tsunami. These battle-hardened Somkempfers slammed into the hastily dug British lines in the dark, tossing out stick grenade after stick grenade. On the left, 
The Staffordshire line crumbled, leaving the second Queen's men with an open left flank. They held off the Germans long enough to collect their senses, organize a retreat, and start backing out of the wood. The situation all around Highwood turned into a confused melee. Tommies were streaming out of the wood and into the fields to the south. In those fields were the Glasgow Highlanders, setting up a defensive line incorrectly from the western end of the wood to the southeastern end. A few hundred yards away, the first Queen's men stretched their line from Bazantan le Petit along the road to High Wood, but had their right flank in the air as the Highlanders were nowhere to be seen in the dark. Now there was a hell of a lot of shooting and bombing, and everything was going to crap. As the early hours of the 15th of July ticked by, the bits and pieces of the multiple British battalions in and around High Wood began stitching a line together, running along the southern edge of the wood, into it, and connecting with men of the Second Queens still holding out in the northeastern edge of the forest. Brigadier General Baird and his 100th Brigade, along with the 98th Brigade to his left somewhere, had orders to attack the switch line running west of High Wood at 9 a.m. Higher command was under the very false assumption that High Wood had been taken, but Baird dismantled that idea with furious communications over the phone. He had a good grasp on the ground situation and needed to make sure everyone else did as well. His men's lives were in the balance. For his brigade to be successful, 7th Division needed to get in High Wood and take it. Now. But his attack was to go on whether High Wood was in British hands or not. As artillery slammed down into the area of the switch line behind the wood and to the west, as it snaked towards the ruins of Martin Puich, Baird's Highlanders and Queen's men got themselves into attacking positions and formations. Rows and rows of men organized into assault waves. They did so under the watch of Germans now in the wood, who poured rifle and machine gun fire at them and called down mortars. Losses mounted among the Tommies as they waited out the minutes until they attacked. The preparatory bombardment missed much of the switch line as well as its wire, though it did raise a hell of a lot of noise. Further to the west, other Tommies were working to assault Pozier at this time, and to the east, the South African Brigade was swarming into Delville Wood for the first time. At 9.30 a.m., the guns went silent. As had happened so many times before, British soldiers steeled themselves. Trench whistles blew. Men rose and jogged forward towards the enemy. In the fields south of High Wood, the Highlanders were on the right, closer to the wood. First Queens advanced on their left. Their objective was the smoking area several hundred yards up ahead that should be the shattered remnants of the switch line. Behind the Glasgow Highlanders were Tommies, the 16th King's Royal Rifles Corps, also known as the Church Lads, another PALS unit, a machine gun company led by then-Captain Graham Hutchison was attached to the 16th KRRC. Hutchison's company was to support the attack, and he wrote his account of the action in his memoir titled Pilgrimage. 
It's a long passage, but if you like badasses, then Hutchinson's your man. Quote, I, with my company, was deployed behind the Glasgow Highlanders, which, with the 16th King's Royal Rifles, was to lead the assault upon the wood. By 8.30 a.m., the brigade had deployed into position and lay down in the long grass, awaiting the signal to assault, timed for an hour later. I passed the time with dried blades of grass, chivying the red ants and preventing them from crossing a narrow trench which I had scratched with a fingernail. And I penciled a sketch or two. It was restful and pleasant, lying in the warm, humid atmosphere, belly to the ground, and the quiet of the early morning. I looked up suddenly. The mist was clearing, rising rapidly. The sun peered through, orange and round, topping the trees of high wood. Then its rays burst through the disappearing mists, and all the landscape, hitherto opaque and flat, assumed its stereoscopic, vivid form. The wood seemed quite near, just above us, up the hillside. A little to the left, behind a broken hedge, was an abandoned German battery, dead gunners and horses around it. The village of Martinpuich, jagged ruins and rafters all askew, broken walls and shattered fruit trees looked down. Both trees and village appeared gargantuan, and the men waiting to attack like midgets from Lilliput. From my cover I scanned the landscape. Not a shot was fired. The men crouching in the grass must be visible to watchful observers in the wood, but all remained quiet. I glanced down at my watch. Ten minutes to go. An attack was timed for 9.30. I could see the broad, kilted buttocks and bronzed thighs and knees of the 9th Highland Light Infantry lining the slope ahead of me. They were lying in regular lines. A wind seemed to stir the tall grass. My heart thumped in my throat. I raised my head as the Highlanders rose to their feet, bayonets gleaming in the morning sun. My eyes swept the valley. Long lines of men, officers, at their head in the half-crouching attitude which modern tactics dictate, resembling suppliants rather than the vanguard of a great offensive, were moving forward over three miles of front. As the attackers rose, white bursts of shrapnel appeared among the trees and thinly across the ridge towards Martinpuich. For a moment, the scene remained as if an eldershot maneuver. Two, three, possibly four seconds later, an inferno of rifle and machine gun fire broke from the edge of high wood, from high up in its trees and from all along the ridge to the village. The line staggered. Men fell forward limply and quietly. The hiss and crack of bullets filled the air and skimmed the long grasses. The Highlanders and riflemen increased their pace to a jog trot. Those in reserve clove to the ground more closely. I, looking across the valley to my left flank, could see the men of the First Queens passing up the slope to Martinpuich. Suddenly they wavered, and a few of the foremost attempted to cross some obstacles in the grass. They were awkwardly lifting their legs over a low wire entanglement. Some two hundred men, their commander at their head, had been brought to a standstill at this point. A scythe seemed to cut their feet from under them, and the line crumpled and fell, stricken by machine gun fire. 
Those in support wavered, then turned to fly. There was no shred of cover, and they fell in their tracks as rabbits fall at a shooting battue. Up the slope before me, the line of attack had been thinned now to a few men, who from time to time raised themselves and bounded forward with leaps and rushes. I could see men in the trees taking deliberate aim down upon those who still continued to fight, or who in their scores lay dead and wounded on the hillside. My orders were to move forward in close support of the advancing waves of infantry. I called to my company, and section by section in rushes we were prepared to move forward. As we rose to our feet, a hail of machine gun bullets picked here an individual man, there two or three, and swept past us. I raised a rifle to the trees and took deliberate aim, observing my target crash through the foliage into the undergrowth beneath. On my right, an officer commanding a section had perished with all his men, with the exception of one who came running towards me, the whole of the front of his face shot away. On my left, two other sections had been killed almost to a man, and I could see the tripods of the guns with legs waving in the air and ammunition boxes scattered among the dead. With my runner, a young Scot, I crept forward among the dead and wounded who wailed piteously and came to one of my guns mounted for action, its team lying dead beside it. I seized the rear leg of the tripod and dragged the gun some yards back to where a little cover enabled me to load the belt through the feed block. To the south of the wood, Germans could be seen, silhouetted against the skyline, moving forward. I fired at them and watched them fall, chuckling with joy at the technical efficiency of the machine. Then I turned the gun and, as with a hose in a garden, sprayed the treetops with lead. The attack of the rifles and Highlanders had failed, and of my own company but a few remained. My watch showed that by now it was scarcely ten o'clock, I hurriedly wrote a message reporting the position and that of the attack for the colonel of the 2nd Worcestershires, a gallant soldier and good friend, who was in a sunken road with his battalion in reserve 300 yards to the rear. I gave this to my runner. Keep low, I said, and go like blazes, for the waving grass was being whipped by bullets, and it scarcely seemed possible that life could remain for more than a few minutes. A new horror was added to the scene of carnage. From the valley, between Pozières and Martinpuich, a German field battery had been brought into action, enfilading the position. I could see the gunners distinctly. At almost point-blank range, they had commenced to direct shellfire among the wounded. The shells bit through the turf, scattering the white chalk and throwing aloft limbs, clothing, and fragments of flesh. Anger and the intensity of the fire consumed my spirit, and, not caring for the consequences, I rose and turned my machine gun upon the battery, laughing loudly as I saw the loaders fall. I crept forward among the Highlanders and riflemen, spurring them to action, giving bullet for bullet, directing fire upon the machine gun nests whose red flashes and wisps of steam made them conspicuous targets. Shellfire increased from both flanks, and the smooth sward became pitted and hideous. But as each shell engraved itself upon the soil, a new scoop of cover was made for the safety of a rifleman. A Highlander, terror in his eyes, lay on his back spewing blood, 
the chest of his tunic stained red. I tore open the buttons and shirt. It was a clean bullet wound, and I gave words of encouragement to the man, dragging him to a shell cavity, so that in a more upright position he could regain strength after the swamping of his lungs, and then creep back to safety. The dismal action was continued throughout the morning, German fire being directed upon any movement on the hillside. Unquote. The enemy was hammering at the attacking British units mercilessly with machine gun, rifle, and artillery fire. Nevertheless, a company of the Glasgow Highlanders made it into High Wood, where Private F. Middleton and his mates almost immediately found themselves under heavy fire and in a desperate firefight. Quote, We immediately took ground cover. George Cunningham on my left had a knee shattered. My other two buddies, Johnny Aitken and Willie Walker, were killed. Another lad close by dropped with a bullet through his stomach and was crying out in agony. It was only then that I realized we were in a clearing. A few yards to my left there was a shell hole, and another lad and myself managed to pull George Cunningham along to it. We were loosening his equipment when word passed along to retire left out of the wood. We had to crawl on all fours for perhaps a hundred to one hundred fifty yards amidst a hail of bullets. It took all our strength to do it. Unquote. The battle inside the wood was smoke-filled chaos. Rifles cracked, machine guns roared, grenades burst in showers of blood, dirt, and foliage. It was a confused nightmare as only the Germans seemed to know where everyone was at that moment. It was dangerous to do much more than hide in a shell hole until things calmed down. By mid-morning, the first attack by the Highlanders and Queen's men had been shot to pieces. More men of the 16th KRRC were called up, and along with the 2nd Worcesters. These men, too, walked into a wall of machine gun fire and stick grenades once they made their way into High Wood. No further progress could be made. Just after noon, a new round of artillery strikes were called in to smash the switch line up. But with no direct vision on that trench line, the bombardment missed entirely. For just a little more bad luck, some of the British shells fell short among the Tommies inside the trees. The Germans continued to relentlessly hammer at the British. And once they got the fix for the southwest corner of High Wood, shells started screaming down constantly. The British attack was a bloody rout. Private Jack Beeman of A Company of the King's Royal Rifles recalled the fighting that day as a, quote, horrible, terrible massacre. We'd lost all the officers out of our company. We lost all the sergeants, all the full corporals, and all the NCOs right down to Herbert King, who was the senior lance corporal. He was my pal, and he brought A Company out of the wood. We rallied them and brought them out. There were more than 200 of us went in, and Herbert brought them out. 67 men. That was all. Unquote. And it wasn't yet over. In the afternoon, Germans started shelling the southern half of High Wood and the areas to the south heavily, plowing the fields and the wounded and dead Tommies in them. In the switch line, the 3rd Battalion of Infantry Regiment 72 assembled for an immediate counterattack to take back the wood. 
pilot flying over Highwood reported that the switch line was packed with some Kempfers. There was a mishmash of British troops huddling inside the wood under the bombardment. Groups of South Staffordshire's, 2nd Queen's, 22nd Manchester's, 16th King's Royal Rifles, 1st Queen's, 2nd Worcester's, and a contingent of the 21st Manchester's that had been called in as further reinforcements. All knew that after the shelling, the attack would come, so these disjointed groups did what they could to get ready. The shelling stopped. Corporal J.H. Bain, a Glasgow Highlander, recounted the attack that came. Quote, We were warned not to fire until the last possible moment. First we heard commands shouted in German from the depths of the wood, then the noise of twigs breaking. Soon heads could be seen moving above the bushes. We waited until the Germans were about 30 yards away before firing. They were shoulder to shoulder, filling the gaps in the undergrowth. We could not miss and had only to aim to the front. Unquote. Despite a fierce reply of small arms fire, the Germans flooded through the British line in the wood, such as it was. Orders went out to evacuate the wood, but the worn-out Tommies inside didn't need to be told. They were all backing or running out of the shell-torn wood as fast as they could. The Germans retook High Wood. Although once it was determined all friendlies were out, British artillery began smashing it apart. As the British Fourth Army war machine slowly, painfully, ground its way forward through the Somme battleground, all that lay before it fell under its artillery shell treads. Villages, woods, fields, and the bodies of horses and men. Highwood was no exception. As it was now the front line, it very quickly was becoming part of the devastated battle zone. Lynn McDonald has a vivid description of the wood after a day's worth of fighting on the 15th of July, 1916. Quote, The leaves were limp and yellowed by cordite. Branches hung splintered from lurching tree chunks. Whole trees had been uprooted and sent crashing into the trampled undergrowth, and the tangle of branches, now seeming to spring out of the ground, gave fine cover for snipers firing from behind them and, looming up and fearful and grotesque in the light of the green star shells that rose and fell in the heart of the wood, barred the way to the infantry blundering forward." Unquote. Captain Hutchinson also wrote of the wood as he saw it while participating in the follow-on attack on the 15th. Quote, the treetops of the Bois de Foreau, once safe harbor for pigeons, giving shade to peasant lovers, now the high wood of battle, murder, and of sudden death, hung as crazy scarecrows, their broken branches waving in mockery. They assumed fantastic human form, buffoons on stilts, the leaves at the twig ends, a feathery motley with which to crown man's vengeance upon nature at the zenith of her summer glory. From a birch hung the limp body of a too daring sniper, the beheaded trunk like a flower sack caught in the fork of a branch, while blood had poured down the silver surface of its trunk, 
whereon it had silted, black and obscene. I offered a prayer and a curse, brief, the gasp of an overwrought soul from my little band of followers, unquote. It had been a catastrophically costly day for the British. Over 2,500 men had been lost with little to show for it. Now our familiar story on this battlefield. 16th King's Royal Rifles had lost over 550 men alone, and the Glasgow Highlanders were shattered with over 470 men killed, wounded, or missing slash taken prisoner. But it was the 15th of July. The struggle of hot wood was just beginning, and it was off to a brutal start. For the next few days, however, rain forced attack operations to a halt. The Germans contented themselves with shelling Caterpillar Valley with conventional and gas shells, making any support and refit missions affairs as costly as that of an attack. They now held high wood, having fixed their error from the 14th. The Germans did not intend to let go of it again. We're going to stop here for now, but I will be back just as quickly as I can with the second episode on the battle for High Wood. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at ww1podcast. You can also go through the website firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on Facebook. Thanks again for the reviews, and thank you as always for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.